Well, good evening. Well, thank, you for, thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Jeremiah. And um, we're going to consider the first 17 verses of the 11th chapter. So if you have a Bible, it'd be good for you to open it to Jeremiah chapter 11. So you can follow along as I read the text. Jeremiah chapter 11, reading from verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you, so shall ye be my people, and I will be your God. That I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape, and though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of thy cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Therefore, Pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh has passed from thee? When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. The Lord called thy name, a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it. And the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee, for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this night you've given to us. Thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. Thank you that it's been recorded in our own language. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand uh, this portion of Scripture this evening. 
And please grant to us the grace to apply where relevant in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as we've tracked our way uh, through the book of Jeremiah, you have no doubt identified that one of the central themes of this book is judgments. Okay, this particular theme is repeated over and over again. The 11th chapter, which we could view as a sermon given to Jeremiah from the Lord directly, is all about explaining why judgment would be unleashed upon Judah. It establishes their guilt and the justice of the punishment that was going to be unleashed. Okay, this is the big idea of this text. Well, it is evident that the people who Jeremiah were ministering to were not taking his message seriously. You know, it tends to be the tendency of mankind to see ourselves as a lot better than we actually are. And hence they struggled to see why this judgment was going to be unleashed on them. Now, likewise, there's a universal tendency where we view God's patience, his long-suffering, as a sign that he will never judge. If God was going to act, he would have acted by now. And there was also a tendency by Israel to, be, to presume on their special status and privilege okay, as God's people. Okay, since we possess this okay, special privilege as God's people, that makes us immune from judgment. Okay, why would God be so harsh toward us? And all of this was compounded by the smooth-tongued false teachers who were preaching against the teaching of Jeremiah. Okay, they assured the people, you know, it's okay. God won't judge. Okay, you don't have to listen to Jeremiah's message. So this portion of Scripture before us is a bit like a court scene. It establishes and explains why judgment would befall Judah. And the Lord, like a skillful lawyer, substantiates Judah's guilt and proves beyond a doubt that what was coming was both justified and deserved. So with the image of a court scene in our mind, let's unpack both the case and the verdict, and with God's help, Lean what this has to teach us. So firstly, let's consider the case established. Now we are familiar with the concept of a contract. When we make a contract, we are agreeing to meet certain obligations. And if we fail to honor our part of the agreement, there will be ramifications. Most of us have probably got an employment contract. And that outlines the expectations of us in our particular role. And in signing that document, we agree to fulfill the outlined responsibilities. And if we don't, there will be consequences. But this same contract also places obligations on our employer. It reveals what they must pay us, what holidays and sick leave we're entitled to, the overtime rates, and so forth. And if they fail to meet part of their agreement, there will be consequences for them. So this concept of contract obligations is what is identified by the Lord as he presents his case against Judah. There are, key, there are two key words throughout this text. The first is covenant, 
And this is mentioned both directly and indirectly throughout this text. Okay, we see the term used in verse 2, 3, 6, 8, and 10. Okay, but the question is, what is a covenant? Now, one theologian says this. says, covenants are central to God's plans and constitute the vehicles through which God's kingdom purposes unfold. A covenant is a formal agreement or treaty between two parties with obligations and regulations, including blessings and curses for obedience or failure. The vast majority of covenants in the Bible, okay, one, are unconditional or non-nullifiable, in that once the covenant is ratified, the covenant must be fulfilled, and two, are referred to as everlasting. The unconditional covenants include the Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants, and the one conditional and temporary covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. And the covenant that the Lord is identifying in our text, in Jeremiah 11, is the Mosaic Covenant, which is a conditional and temporary covenant. And we glean this from verse 4, which references an historical time period. It says, when they were brought forth out of Egypt. And we know that this was the time that this particular covenant was ratified. The second key term throughout this text is translated in a number of different ways, but it's the same Hebrew word. It occurs in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, and 14. It's translated as hear, or obeyeth, obey, obeyed, or hearken. And this word reveals the guilt of Judah. They had not obeyed. They had not hearkened to the demands of the covenant. They had not heard God's voice in the sense that they had not obeyed the Lord. And we learn very early in the text that the chief piece of evidence that the Lord was going to present in this case against Judah was their failure to honor the covenant obligations. This comes out in verse 2. It says, Hear ye the words of this covenant. This is an instruction to Jeremiah. And then he, being the prophet, was to communicate this message to the people. In verse 3, we see that there were curses attached when one failed to honor their part of the agreement. So when Judah failed to obey, they were inviting curses. So it was the standard practice of the culture at that time for there to be both blessings and curses attached to a covenant agreement, depending on whether the covenant was honored or not. And the curses helped to protect the terms of the contract. It helped to stress the seriousness of the agreement that one was entering into. It prevented alterations, and it ensured the truth and reliability of one's word in making the agreements. Okay, you're not going to lie. If there's a curse attached to it, you will die if you don't fulfill your obligations. But it's a bit like today. If you signed a mortgage, but there was nothing in the contract that said you would lose your home if you didn't make the repayments, people wouldn't make the repayments. Okay, but if the contract says you will lose your home if you miss a repayment, okay, you're going to 
uh, fulfill your obligations, okay? Because there's a curse for a failure to honor your part of the agreement. Now, as mentioned previously, the covenant that's referred to in our text is the Mosaic covenant. And this was given to Israel when the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And this particular covenant was to govern their life and conduct in the promised land. This covenant included moral commandments along with rules and regulations to govern both the civil and the ceremonial affairs of Israel. It actually included 613 commandments in total, and the Ten Commandments function as a summary of this particular agreement. But this covenant, as one writer put it, was bilateral, conditional, and nullifiable, being contingent on Israel's obedience to God. Adherence to the Mosaic Covenant was the means through which Israel could stay connected to the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant. Keeping the Mosaic Covenant out of love for God would lead to spiritual and material prosperity, but disobedience would result in judgment, including removal from the land and dispersion throughout the nations. Okay, so let's consider a couple of portions of Scripture that confirm both the nature and the role of this particular covenant, as that will help us understand Jeremiah chapter 11. So Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, it says this, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So this is the introduction of the covenant. And straight away we see the condition. They need to obey. Okay, that this was their obligation in the agreement. Now we see in Exodus 24 that they agreed to the conditions of the covenant. It was here where this covenant was confirmed and ratified. Okay, we read that an altar was built, sacrifices were made, and verse 7 of Exodus 24 says this, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. So here they sign the contract, if you like. They're in agreement They pledged to honor their part of the covenant. And we see that obedience was the heart of this covenant. Now, we need to go to Deuteronomy. And chapters 27, 28, and 29 help us to understand the conditions of this covenant. So if you could turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 27. This is really helpful in grasping Jeremiah Chapter 11. And in Deuteronomy 27, I want you to notice the pattern. So from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter, we see that every verse starts with the same word and every verse ends with the same word. So it starts with cursed and it ends with amen. And this is pronouncing curses on varying violations of the covenant. And amen means let it be so. So this is an agreement 
from the people. Now, if you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, this chapter splits in two. The first 14 verses are about the blessings of the covenant. So if the people obey, they would be blessed. Verse 2 says, And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Okay, obey, you'll be blessed. Now from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, it contains curses if the obligations of the covenant were not met. Verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And it's interesting, from this list of curses, we see many of these things happened when Babylon invaded. If you look at verse 32, it says, Thy sons and daughters shall be given unto another people. Verse 33, The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed away. Verse 36, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou, shalt, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. Verse 41, Thou shalt go into captivity. Verse 49, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth. Verse 52, And he shall besiege, besiege thee in all the gates, okay, and, and we could go on. These are the curses of the covenant, ramifications if they failed to obey. Now, this is the Lord's point in our text back in Jeremiah 11, okay, verse 3 Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of the covenant. So, this is the case presented. You guys are aware of the covenant. And Deuteronomy 29 verse 15 makes it clear that this covenant was not just for those who agreed to it at that point in time, but it was also for future generations. It says, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. So this is an ongoing agreement, and Judah had been unfaithful and their obligations. They had not obeyed. And that was the heart of the covenant as revealed in verse 4. But they had not met their side of the agreements. And this is despite the Lord being faithful on his part. We see this in verse 5. He had brought them into the land just as he promised. So he honored his part of the agreement, and yet the people had failed. And this is agreed upon by Jeremiah in the closing phrase of verse 5. It says, so be it, which could be translated, amen. And he seems to have Deuteronomy 27 in mind. If you remember previously when we looked, there's a curse, amen, curse, amen. But this phrase, so be it, was a customary way of expressing agreement. It's giving assent to the reliability and truthfulness of what has been spoken. Okay, so this is the prophet, this is Jeremiah agreeing with the Lord. So, yes, Lord, you're correct. You are right. I agree with the assessment. There is a covenant, 
and we agreed to abide by it. Now, Jeremiah is then charged to proclaim the message of the covenant to the people. Verse 6 seems to indicate that he preached this message both in Jerusalem and in the surrounding cities, challenging the people to be faithful to their covenant obligations. But unfortunately, just like throughout their history, which is recorded in verses 7 and 8, Judah refused to obey. They walked down the well-worn path of covenantal unfaithfulness. They did not listen to Jeremiah. And hence, they were without excuse. Okay, they had been warned again and again and again, and yet they refused to obey. And such was the extent of their disobedience that it seemed like a conspiracy had been hatched. Okay, we read this in verse 9, which says, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, it seems best to view this conspiracy metaphorically. And one commentator said, there was no deep laid plot, no secrecy behind the apostasy that Jeremiah witnessed, although religiously Judah displayed all that a carefully organized plot would achieve. So the idea being such was their revolt against the Lord, so widespread, so pervasive was the rebellion, it seemed like it was a formally planned mutiny against the Lord. It seemed like they had deliberately plotted to renounce their covenant obligations and espouse apostasy. And this is unpacked for us in verse 10. They had turned back to the same sin of their ancestors. They have not learned from the mistakes of the past. They have not listened to the Lord. Okay, the Lord has spoken to them through his prophets, not just Jeremiah, but other prophets as well, over and over again, and yet they forsook the Lord, that they pursued other gods. They had violated the covenants. They had been unfaithful, and the evidence was damning. So this was the charge brought against Judah. They had completely breached the covenants. And with the charge established, let's now consider the pronouncement of the verdict. Verse 11 commences with the word, therefore, and this introduces the verdict. So we've established that Judah had breached the covenant, and according to the covenant, this would result in curses being unleashed. This is what they'd agreed to, and the Lord reveals the verdict, evil is going to be unleashed upon them. So great and tumultuous would be this judgment. There would be no way of escape. These covenant curses were inescapable. God will keep his promises. God will keep both his positive promises and also his negative promises. I want you to notice four things in the text, that reveal the certainty of the curse and that they were now unavoidable, which highlights the hopelessness of the situation. And number one, the Lord wouldn't listen to them. We see this at the end of verse 11. They were now in a situation where they could cry out unto the Lord, Lord, save us, Lord, help us, but the Lord would not hear them. That's not a good place to be. It was too late. 
that the time for repentance had passed and now their cries unto the Lord would prove futile. Number two, their false gods were silent. In verses 12 and 13, we see the extent of the idolatry of this people. It had completely engrossed society. There were more gods than cities. There were more altars than streets in Jerusalem. So this was a cancer that had spread throughout this society. It was widespread. And they would cry out to these gods. Okay, when judgment came, they would cry out, but that would be pointless. It would be pointless. Because the one thing that all these idols had in common was that they couldn't offer salvation from God's judgment. Number three, Jeremiah was prohibited to pray. In verse 14, the Lord instructs Jeremiah, this is for the second time, don't intercede for these people. Israel had been saved previously in their history because of intercession from a prophet. Think of Moses. But that time had now passed. So God tells his prophet, tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Don't intercede on their behalf. I won't deliver them. I won't answer that prayer. They are too far gone. And then number four, sacrifices would be pointless. In verse 15, we see that all the sacrifices that they would offer would not prevent judgment. No amount of sacrifices could prevent the disaster that was coming. And again, this stresses the futility of outward religious activity without love and obedience toward the Lord. Their religious rituals would prove vain. And this paints a very grim picture for Judah. The verdict is clear. Judgment was coming. It was unavoidable, inescapable. And look at the imagery in verse 16. They were like a fair olive tree planted by the Lord. So so picture this, this beautiful tree, and yet they would be struck by lightning and burnt by fire. These branches of this lovely tree were going to be snapped off. That is what was coming their way. And this was inevitable because they had breached the covenant. They stood under the curse. Calamity was coming their way, but it was completely justifiable because they broke the covenant. So here the Lord is simply fulfilling his promise to enforce the terms of the agreement. And hence the people could not plead ignorant as to why this judgment was unleashed. They couldn't stand and go, you know, why, Lord? I don't understand why this is happening. Judah's guilt of covenantal unfaithfulness is established beyond a doubt, and hence they justly stand condemned under the curse of that covenant. What was coming was both just and deserved. This was not harsh or unfair by the Lord. It was not unleashed because God was cruel. It was not the Lord's fault. This was both fair and to be expected in light of the covenant agreement and Judah's failure to honor their obligations in the covenant. So what does this have to teach us? I've got two things. Number one, God's people are not exempt from divine chastening. We need to be very careful when drawing application from texts like 
Jeremiah 11, because we are not under the old covenant as Christians. We are now under the new covenant. And hence the promises of material blessings and curses does not transfer to us. So it's important that we grasp that vital theological point. But it's interesting that we can learn in the text that God will chasten Judah. God will punish his people. And this principle is true for us. We we as God's people will not be punished eternally. Jesus Christ has taken care of the condemnation and the damnation of our sin. But we need to understand that if we live in sin, we continue to pursue it, God will chasten us. You know, like a loving father, he will correct his children. We cannot go about doing the wrong thing and think, well, it doesn't matter. God's not going to do anything about it. We can often presume on the grace, goodness, and long-suffering of God. We think, you know, God's gracious, so I'll just continue in my sin. Okay, but remember this point. Okay, you can choose your sin, but you don't get to choose your consequences. Okay, you can choose your sin, but you don't get to choose your consequences. Okay, and, and the consequences for your sin okay, are divine discipline designed to correct us and drive us from the sin that we have committed. Okay, so it's vital for you and I to grasp that our God does and will chasten us when we are in sin. Okay, being a Christian makes us a child of God, okay, by very definition, which ensures that He is our Father. Since He is our Father, He will discipline us when we're doing the wrong thing. Okay, Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. Okay, so it's a blessing when you're chastened by the Lord because it means you belong to Him. Okay, that's a positive. Okay, but this is part of being a Christian. And it's part of the motivation toward holiness. We don't want to come under divine discipline. But understand, if you refuse to forgive others, if you refuse to be reconciled, if your sexual ethics is inconsistent with the Bible, if you're a constant liar, if you're lazy, if you're not fulfilling the biblical roles and responsibilities in the home or whatever it may be, don't be surprised if the Lord takes you with the rod, okay, if there are some severe consequences, because that is what he does for his children, because he loves us. And number two, if it wasn't for Christ, we would be under the curse of the law. Galatians 3.10 says this, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. All mankind in their natural condition stands under the curse like Judah. We are all obligated to keep the law perfectly and yet we all fall miserably short. We breach the covenant in thousands of different ways and hence we are under the curse. And there are no exceptions. Okay? All who fail to do what's written in the law, okay, which is all of us, okay, are under the curse of the law. In other words, God's judgment will be unleashed on them. 
Okay, so, so everyone in their natural condition is cursed. And this necessitates the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, and only because of him there is a way through the curse. Galatians 3 continues, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's good news. How? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. My friend, Christ was cursed on our behalf. Understand, Jesus, he kept the law perfectly. And yet he bore the curse of the law in our place. He took the wrath of the curse that we deserve. God unleashed his righteous fury on Jesus Christ. And because of his finished work on the cross, we have been redeemed. We have been brought out from under the curse of the law. That is the good news of the gospel. Praise God that Jesus Christ was made a curse for us so that we would be saved from enduring the curse of the law that we all deserve. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of Scripture. Thank you for how it points us to Christ. And uh, we we are so grateful uh, that he was cursed uh, in our place. He took that which um, we uh, rightfully uh, deserve. And uh, yet, Lord, there's also lessons here for us in our our sanctification. And uh, Lord, please help us. Uh, to to remember that uh, you will chasten us when we do uh, the wrong thing. And uh, may may that act um, as a a preventative uh, for sin in our lives. Lord, please help us uh, to live for you and to represent uh, you well throughout the rest of this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.